Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Diadora, the brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg, and currently worn by world number 28, Jan Leonard Struff, world number 34, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, and world number 18, Martina Trevisan. See them at Diadora.com. We begin the seventh season of the podcast with a special chat. At the time of this interview, today's guest was filing his final story as a staff writer for the New York Times, capping a 30-year career at The Grey Lady. He is the author of the best-selling biography on Roger Federer, The Master, and we have him here for you today to discuss tennis's current events. Christopher Clary joined me from his home in Paris, and we had a phenomenal chat. Now, hang on. You're in Paris. I am. And what's your weather? It's gorgeous today. Okay. Absolutely gorgeous. The opposite of the Rome debacle, the weather debacle, and nothing like two weeks of rain to turn a tennis tournament into a sad state of affairs. (laughs) I know that it was kind of like reminding me of that. I forget what year it was, but we called it the drench open because that's what it was. It was just Uh. nonstop puddles forming on the clay and... Yeah, it's a brutal situation. So hard to get out of it, you know. And you're in Paris because you're in position for the French, or you're because you live there. What's the situation, Chris? My wife is French, and I have lived here a lot of my adult life. Lived here full time some of the time. Lived here part time a lot of the time. And and so we have a you know we have a pied à terre here. And so I'm I'm just back uh, getting ready for the French Open. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, kings and queens, gentlemen, you hear friend of the show, long time tennis writer and sailing for the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune, correct? That's Chris Clary. Craig, good to be with you. Bonjour. Bonsoir. I don't even know anymore. I'm still jet lagging. So yeah, here we yeah. are. Yeah. In you Paris. just flew. You, you were buzzing around. You were on the West Coast and you were on the East Coast and now you're in Paris. Your big news is that you just shared with me that you are writing your last story for the New York Times today. Yeah, I mean, I'm I step my last story as a staff writer. I I do hope to keep writing for the Times down the road. I mean, we're leaving on good terms. Uh, they've been great to me, and I just uh, I don't know what the future holds. But as a staff writer, yeah, this I'm writing my last story, Craig, which is pretty weird. I've been writing for the Times for 32 years, so it's a strange feeling. I can tell you that. Tell the truth. You write it with tears in your eyes. Are you is it been an emotional little moment? I'm not a real teary guy. I probably should be more, maybe better for my mental health if I were. <laughs> but um, I've had a couple moments for sure. You can't not. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, certain people in my office who've been, who've really touched me. We have somebody at the office named Terry Ann Glenn, who has been a, uh, just a fantastic support for all the writers and, and just as a terrific person. And talking to her the other day, I got all choked up. So, I mean, she's, she's got Irish blood like me. We're both emotional. So, but it was just a great conversation and, and, you know, that's what people coming at you from different directions, great emails, great, great notes. It really means a lot. And, you know, it's, I spent most of my last 32 years writing on deadline, deadline, Craig, I've been, you know, sit there with nose to the grindstone, happily doing it. You kind of are in the moment. That's what journalism is, especially newspaper journalism. And so it's, it's been emotional to kind of get a deep breath and look back with people and, and kind of get a sense of, yeah, you know, a pretty serious nostalgia, no doubt about it. I have more questions about this. But as you know, we typically do a five-set format. We're not doing that today. We're going to just do a long second set, the on-the-court report, the business of tennis, and then we're going to talk about your moves and grooves and next endeavors. Sounds great. So let's just get right into it. This is the second set. The biggest news in tennis, Rafa has announced 
that he is officially on the mend until either the back end of the year or 2024. Can you share your perspectives? Well, one of the reasons, actually, the big reason I am leaving the Times is because I'm writing a book about Rafa Nadal. <laughs> I'm writing a biography. And so I did my book on Federer called The Master. Um, and I wrote that because I felt like it was, I didn't think his career was going to be over, but I thought he was the body of work, the main body of work was done. I think you and I talked about that at the time. And um, the Nadal book is sort of, I decided to do it now for the same reason. I feel like you know, Rafa has done amazing things and might have some more left in him, but the bulk of it's done. It's time to draw some conclusions. But as far as the situation here, it is reminiscent of Roger's situation. You got a chronic injury. Roger had his knee problems. I don't know if Rafa is going to have to go through surgery. doesn't sound like it, but Roger did and took a long break. And then another long break, which he announced kind of like Rafa did yesterday or two days ago. And, um, you know, basically uh, we don't know for sure he's coming back. And I don't think he knows either. He, He may not. This could be it. You know, we saw Federer come back and play one match at the Labor Cup and uh, with Rafa and doubles, and that was the end of it. So it's not unthinkable that Nadal has played his last, you know, real meaningful match on tour. Um, I hope not for him and for the sport. And knowing him and how incredibly uh, persistent he is and what how much he loves the the combat, I would be surprised. But it is a possibility. And and but I know if he when he comes back, having been through all this, he's not going to want to come back. Uh, hobbling or not feeling 100 great so I, I think he, he wants to owe that i think he owes that to himself and that's what he wants to do but honestly until you see the day-to-day progression or you're, or you're a medical doctor it's pretty, it's pretty hard to know what to expect here craig did you um hear any interesting information since he tore the soas in january when he was playing mackie Genuinely, I know his team and people that were around him were expecting him to come back for the clay court season. I mean, that was really the plan. I don't think anybody ever thought he'd have a, have a great chance to come back on hard courts once they saw the severity of it. And I think it really mystified them and surprised them. And he, he was unable to make that work. And, and you know, I, I've been even watching just like I have. You've seen all the, all the footage of him trying to go out on the court and, you know, going through these drills. And you know, Rafa Nadal practice is, is 200%. I mean, that's what he does. And you, you, you've been courtside for those. I have too. And it's just an intense experience to watch him train. So you can see that he's hampered. And then there's this, you know, I just feel like he had to be at peace with himself. He had to give all that he could, but it just wasn't close enough. And I, you know, honestly, I, I think he's been surprised by the severity of it. Maybe that's partly age or other things that are going on. So he's really in uncharted territory for him. I, he's been so resilient through all the injuries, but I don't know if he'll be able to come back from this one. Have you retired him in your mind? Are you, uh, do you give the benefit of the doubt to the champion? You know why I haven't, Craig? Because I've been made to look like a fool plenty of times at the French <laughs> yeah. Open when I have said, nah, not this year, and I've been wrong. So I, Rafa Nadal, until you know he says it himself and and he arches his left eyebrow and tells you it's done, um, I'm not going to believe it's done. So I, no, not by no means am I writing him off. Have you spoken to you know Benito or any of the people in his camp? Do you have any information we don't? They've been very, you know, obviously tied up with their own organization, huge interest in the story globally and above all, of course, in Spain. So that they've, they've had other people to talk to than me. But I, I just know that, you know, it's uh, they gave it a legitimate shot and and he was really expecting better things than he got. So that's not a great sign. And and uh, I know from talking to uh, people that he's serious about trying to come back and play the Davis Cup final in Malaga, which would be in November. 
makes sense. I mean, it's an event that he has a great connection with and wants to support this, you know, the sport in Spain and that's you know, right there for him. And so I think if he does follow his timeline, that's when he would come back and play. He wouldn't just come back in 2024. Have you heard any rumblings that, you know, being a father, having a whole different routine has been challenging for him? Is that something you've heard? No, I haven't heard that. But and I, and honestly, he always said, you know, not always, but the few times he talked, he talked about it. He said that when he had kids, he, he could sort of see himself being off the tour rather than being on the tour. He ended up playing longer than I think he expected. So that ended up happening when it did. But I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, clearly Rafa, even if he were healthier, wouldn't be playing for five more years. You know, he's going to be playing for a couple more years. I think that's the way he sees it. And as soon as he can't win the French Open in his own mind, then I think he's done. But he knows, based on recent experience, that he can still win it if he's playing well. He was at a super high level not long ago on a tennis court. We all saw it. Um, so, you know, Wimbledon last year wasn't that long ago. So I feel like um, the fatherhood thing, for sure, he's a family guy. He's part of that you know, great Nadal clan from uh, Manicor. You know he's going to uh, tap into that, and that's going to be so important to him to raise his, his, uh, his son and other children that they may have in that environment. But I think he's still got some more tennis in him in his, in his own mind. But clearly, the longer you're away from things, and I remember Roger talking about this too, the longer you're away with your family and you're in a routine and you're part of that day-to-day, -day, sure, it gets harder to go back on the road and do all that again. I'm sure it will be. 112-3, and three, the greatest record, for, for me at least, in the history of sports. You know, that's so tricky. I, 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 you're definitely temp tempted to say that in terms of just like is recency bias or not. You're definitely tempted to kind of – say that but I, there's got to be something else got to be some kind of alexander Karelin, the greco-roman wrestler who won how many in a row you know there's <laughs> all these other other events that people bring up after after you make that kind of statement but i think we're safe to say it's one of the greatest achievements in sports for sure and it is it is an amazing amazing stat and god knows he's earned it craig match by match set by set it's starting to feel to me like 2022 was his sort of coup de gras, right? The, he he comes out, takes takes that long break, wins the Australian, is getting injections into that foot, wins the French, and then he had stomach muscle tear that took him out of Wimbledon and then took him out of the U.S. Open, right? He was he was a shell of himself against Tiafo in that match. Yeah, I mean, the, a lot of people think he shouldn't have finished the match against Taylor Fritz at Wimbledon that he ended up winning. Right. You know, before he withdrew the, from the Curios match there from the semi. Right. So, I mean, his, his father and his family were all, you know, saying, no mas, no mas, you know, making, making the cut sign. And he just wouldn't do it. I mean, so in a sense, I mean, that's just classic Nadal, isn't it? You know, it's just, uh, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to honor my opponent. I'm going to honor myself by doing this thing to the utmost, even though I'm limited. And he found a way to do it. I mean, that, it displays both his tenacity and his problem-solving ability, which are both off the charts. But yeah, he hasn't been the same player since then, obviously. And, and even before that, I mean, pre-French, you remember Indian Wells, I mean, playing Taylor again in the final there. He, after having played Alcaraz in the semis, this is March of 2022, he, he ended up with a, you know, a hairline fracture in his rib. He's playing matches with that. So uh, right, right, really right. since it was a rib fracture, right? right yeah, right, right. that was rib. That was before. So he had the rib. Then he had the problem with the uh, with the abdominal thing at, at Wimbledon. But basically, he's been fighting his body big time since he won that Australian Open in 2022. So it's uh, it's been a tough battle, but he was still playing great ball um, at Wimbledon for sure. What can you tell us about Simona Halep to, to see a great champion getting into so much 
trouble and also having the case being shelved seems sort of troubling. Well, I got to tell you, Craig, I, I've covered, uh, you know, Olympic sports and, and international sport for 30 plus years, and I've covered a lot of doping cases, many, many, um, go back to Marion Jones back in the day. And I did a, a lot of coverage of, of, of Sharapova's case. So that word you use seems is a very tough one to use. You get, you got to be very careful here. Right? And I, I'm going to be very careful too, probably more careful than you'd like, but I just feel like these cases, there is so much happening behind the scenes, so much work happening with the lawyers and the investigators and everything else on both sides. It's just really difficult to, uh, to sort of draw any major conclusions here or else, or, or to exonerate you know, Simona Halep, how, however much we like Simona Halep, uh, from public perspective and oh. to uh, talk about that, I think it's very difficult to sort of start saying things like, you know, she's like the kind of person who wouldn't dope. That may well be true. I just don't think we can say anything definitively at this point. But isn't it true that these doping agencies, these are the most serious organizations essentially in the sport that they have no room for error with regards to this because of the seriousness of the allegation, taking a former world number one off the tour and not giving them these hearings and stuff. It seems like they're almost trying to save her from herself. Well, there was a positive test. I mean, that's clear. The question is why, you know, Halep says it was inadvertent. Most people who end up in these cases say it was inadvertent and it often is. It's just ultimately the responsibility is with the athlete in the modern era. Now, the way the doping sort of um, adjudication has evolved, the burden is on the athlete. Um, to not get things in their system I and mean, avoid supplements that might have any possibility of this occurring, all kinds of things like that. I mean, Sharapova as well, they, the rules changed. Meldonium uh, became uh, a banned substance. Uh, her argument was that she didn't realize it. She missed the memo and, and her agent, Max Eisenberg said he missed the memo and uh, ended up testing positive for it in the initial months that it had been banned. So, and then she was basically absolved of any intentional doping and in all the different tribunals that went on. So that may be, well be the case with Simona Halep as well. But I think, you know, if, if she tested positive, there's going to be, it's going to be a hard case for her to disprove entirely or to, uh, to have her sanction, uh, you know, fully, uh, fully reduced. But, you know, I wish her the best in, in the, in the effort, but tennis was criticized for a long time for not doing enough on doping. Yeah. And it was criticized because the International Tennis Federation was the one running the show. Yeah. It was internal. They basically outsourced it now yeah. to get it off their books. This is not their bailiwick anymore. So they, in a sense, they, the sport deserves some credit for trying to get this to be more, one, uh, I think, transparent and, 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 one, and two, more independent. So let's let the process play out. But it's just a tough one because obviously Simona Halep has got a huge amount of uh, goodwill built up around her in the game. And, and, uh, it's tough for people to process, but you got to let the process play out. What are your feelings about the health of the WTA coming off of, you know, sort of troublesome big 1000 events, Madrid and Rome? Well, I mean, the thing is they've been very open about the fact they've had issues, especially since the pandemic with, you know, getting, you know, the revenue that they need. They've made some big moves. I mean, they, they brought in, um, you know, title sponsor. And, and they also signed that deal with CVC to try to, uh, you know, bring in some, not going to get all that money from CVC right away, but they got some, some funding there. That's, that's given them some, uh, uh, I think some more margin, but there's a fundamental problem. They're not getting the same rights for television, uh, for their product as the men are. And there's a big gap there because of that. It's, that's one of the main things that's happening. And also I think, you know, the, uh, the tournaments, the, their decisions and some things that get made reflect that a little bit. 
but ultimately I, I'm a big believer in women's tennis still. And I'm a big believer that they need their own, um, you know, leaders and their own association and that they should be able to, to thrive on their own. I think it's, it's one of the, the best brands in, in sports. So it's just a matter of them, I think, finding a way to, uh, to convince more TV executives of that and to, uh, but it's tricky in these, in these dual events to see, you know, when people end up having to pay a price, you should not be playing a Masters 1000 final for uh, for the woman at a event as prestigious as the Italian Open at 11 p.m. at night with nobody watching or very few. So they shouldn't be in that position. And so I, I, whatever needs to be done to avoid that and to kind of find a better way for them to get the the value and the showcase that they deserve needs to be done. I know they had their weather issues in Rome for sure, and I'm sympathetic to that, but you still shouldn't put a final out there of that of that kind of prestige at that time of night. It shouldn't happen. Just to backtrack for a second, the CVC deal and, and essentially the WTA sold a piece of their company to a financial you know, institution, a venture capitalist, a VC. People have criticized that deal. Can you explain that? Well, I mean, CVC has been involved. Uh, they're Luxembourg-based, and they've been involved in a, in a in a bunch of funding for sport. They were involved in... Um, you know, Formula One. They owned Formula One at one juncture. Yeah, they were the they were the majority owner. They controlled it. They're controlling owner. There other other people had stakes, I believe, but they they controlled it. And there was and there was criticism in terms of how they managed that. So, you know, this is it's not a necessarily a uh, all good news for the WTA. Obviously, they would probably prefer to have kept the independence and not 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 have gone outside. But you know, it is it is a legitimate company, CVC Capital Partners, and. Um, they did not buy a stake in the pure tour in a sense. They just, they bought a 20% stake in, in this new subsidiary the tour has created, a WTA sort of media arm. So the, you know, the core of the tour is still uh, not involved with CVC, but this separate arm that's been created a bit like ATP media is, is, has got a 20% stake, which has gone to CVC in exchange for $150 million. And, and they're a private equity company. Um, private so, equity. We're not we're not clear on the on the exact nature of when that money will come into WTA coffers, and they're not saying. But certainly, it's 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 a legitimate deal, and um, they haven't surrendered control of their sport, but they certainly have given CVC a seat at the table. And you know, obviously, as people like yourself and for me who've been around tennis a long time, you know, there, there are already a lot of people with seats at the table, probably too many. So you add another uh, vested interest into the game, it's going to create potentially uh, more obstacles to change. They gave it a long look and bottom line, they, they need the funding, they need the money. And, um, and hopefully this will allow them to, uh, you know, to do some things to market the sport better and, and hopefully put themselves in position to start closing that gap on the TV rights, which is one of the biggest issues because of the gap is the gap is huge. Do you think the current administration, the current WTA has done a poor job marketing their athletes? You know, part of it, I, I'm not I'm not privy to all their marketing plans, and I haven't always paid as much attention maybe as I should to some of the way things that they were trying to do. I know there's been maybe a lack of consistency over a 20, 25 year period in terms of how they've approached it, and they've had a lot of different leaders and different things that have come along over time that have taken different approaches. And they've also, you know, not always been super lucky in the sense that the men had uh, these amazing rivalries. With Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Tassin, Murray, and Vavrinka and Del Potro, you know, or this golden era where the top men were were playing each other all the time in the big matches, and sure. 
often in the Masters 1000s that really help those brands you know, consistently grow and, and get more prestigious because you just kept having this appointment viewing. And let's face it, the women haven't had a consistent rivalry probably since, uh, I mean, honestly, since Everton Navratilova. I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy. And a lot of it's been sort of happenstance or or people retiring early or, or players being dominant at different times. I mean, I just always go back to like some of the things that should have been great rivalries. Serena Williams versus Kim Kleister should have been a great rivalry. And they had some crazy matches like the U.S. Open one when Serena ends up getting defaulted at the end. But um you know, they should have played 30 times and they played just a few. So yeah, Justin Hennon and, and Serena was a great rivalry for a little while. And then Hennon ends up getting hurt off the tour gone. So it's, you know, Serena Williams and Sharapova, the two biggest factors in women's tennis, totally lopsided. wasn't a rivalry at all. So, I mean, it's, it's just been a lot of things that have happened. And then women's tennis lately, you got these amazing personalities like Naomi Osaka, great, great player with a wonderful demeanor and Ash Barty. And basically, hopefully Osaka will come back, but off off the off the radar and and pregnant and not sure what her future is in tennis, although she wants to come back. And then you've got Ash Barty who retires, you know, in her mid twenties. So that's happened again and again. It seems like the women's tennis. So it's, you know, in terms of the marketing, you know, you have to be able to market above all in tennis personalities, but personality versus personality, Craig, and that's been missing. What was your opinion of the extended Madrid, extended Rome? I totally understand the reasoning. I mean, why the Indian Wells in Miami get the golden ticket and nobody else does, you know, you, you totally get that. And I can see why the other masters 1000s are going, well, why not us? But I, as we've talked about, you know, in the press course since then, and I'm, I'm sure you've talked about it yourself with some of your other guests. I mean, it can be a double-edged sword because those, if the players end up with a bunch of mini slams and then the slams, that is a uh, that's a grueling calendar, not just physically, but emotionally and psychologically. Because when you're whether you have days off or not, when you're on site at a tournament, you are in full work mode, as Igor Fiontek rightly pointed out. So I'm not sure how the players are going to hold up there. And also, you know, tennis it does need to have a way to reach different markets around the world. And and I realize that above all, it's going to be delivered through television and digital means. But you know, when you get to smaller markets and you have, uh, you know, big time players who are able to play there in some ways, especially in their home markets, I think that's a great way of growing the game. It's important. And I, I don't know if we're going to see that as much at all with these extended Masters 1000s taking up so much of the air and space for the top players. What can you tell us about the Saudi initiatives that we've been hearing about? It sounds like big money is starting to come the talk of sport washing, the a live golf situation. What can you tell us about Jeddah and Riyadh getting events? Well, I'm no big Saudi Arabian expert, um, Craig, unfortunately, and, I, and I've never been there. Um, I definitely have followed, um, you know, some of the debates that have been had within the men's and women's tours about how deeply they want to get involved with it. And, and clearly, you know, live is a, uh, has been a huge talking point and a rubbing point in sport, but ultimately many other sports and many other, uh, you know, major players in, in global sport are, are engaging with Saudi Arabia. So how long will tennis, you know, stay outside that and not get involved in a bigger way? I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a tough question. Roland Garros begins shortly. How are you feeling about this year's tournament? 
on a personal level, it's going to be weird for me because I've been on newspaper or, you know, digital deadlines for the New York Times or the International Herald Tribune for 30 years, and I'm not going to be this time. So I may have more time to, uh, you know, have a croissant and, a, and a, maybe a glass of red wine when the day is done than I've ever had before. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. I'm kind of looking forward to watching tennis and researching my Nadal book and, and looking at all that. But as far as the tournament itself, I mean, uh, it's uh, it's got to be a different kind of year than we've seen in a long time. But no Nadal for the first time in 19 years. And Igor Fiantek pulling up with an injury in Rome. And that's uh, hard to see her as as clear a favorite as she looked about two weeks ago. So it's, I think it's an interesting time. I mean, in terms of the, uh, the forces at work, you'd expect to see one big new generation, uh, uh, old generation clash on the men's side. You got to imagine if Djokovic's elbows decent enough he's going to make a decent run and be able to play one of the young guns either a rune or an alcaraz at some point which would be great to see um but it is a different kind of year and it feels like a year when um you could see a another surprise on the woman's side especially if Iga's not 100 percent. and uh it feels like a year when one of the young guys could make their their move at roland garros what, what do you think the absence of rafa will it take away from the event or will it just kind of like the, the tournaments just keep, keep cranking along? Roland Garros is cranking. They are tickets are as hard to get as they've ever been from, I'm hearing from my friends here in Paris who've been trying to, <laughs> to get online and get tickets. They cut down the grounds passes this year. I heard by 15,000 compared to last year because they uh, just thought it was getting too crowded and and I, they were right. I'm sure I can tell you they were right from having been there many years and seeing how crowded the outside courts get. So that's made tickets harder to come by probably. And there's just a huge amount of enthusiasm about, um, about the event. We're still in that post pandemic phase. Olympics are on the horizon for Paris 2024. So I think people are ready to escape and have a good time. So that I think the buzz will be huge out there. Night sessions are, you know, still a bit of an issue in terms of how that's managed, what they choose to play in those night, that one single match night session slot. But I mean, it's still a, you know, I was out there plenty of times the last two years and, and the vibe was very, very good. Only problem is they finished super late. There's no way for people to get home. So it's, uh, huh. but I think the, uh, the overall, you know, state of the tournament is, is very good. And, and there's a, a lot of enthusiasm about Carlos Alcaraz and the kind of player that he is. And the French have a love a spectacular player. This is also, if I'm not mistaken, the 40th anniversary of Yannick Noah's victory at the French. Correct. So I'm sure we're going to be having lots of Noah nostalgia, which the French always love. And that's, that's a great thing for all of us because there's a few more charismatic people in any sport than Yannick Noah. So I can always read a Noah interview or, or listen to a Noah interview and be a happy man. Yeah, so no I think doubt. I think I think I think it'll be a good buzz. I think it'll be real good. Have the night sessions ruin the tournament? <laughs> They've ruined a lot of our dinner plans, that's for sure. But we're not, we're not at all the most important thing there. You know, I don't think they've ruined the tournament. It does create, obviously, you know, with red clay being a surface that changes a lot of natural surface based on the conditions. It does create really, really a big disparity in terms of the kind of tennis that's being played. At, you know, 11 a.m. at Roland Garros or at noon versus what's being played at 11 p.m. because, the, you know, the court is not a pure roof. It, there is airflow that comes in there. So you're never really playing indoors entirely, even though the roof is closed. It's more of a canopy that's closed. So it gets heavy in there and 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 chilly. So different kind of tennis to play. I'm sure some of the top players, you know, 
don't appreciate having to go through that because it does require a lot of adjustment on their part. But ultimately, you're trying to, uh, you know, tennis needs to market itself. It's a competitive Darwinian sports world out there. And, um, you know, if night sessions can be done, you know, people work five days out of the week here. So they need to be able to go out and watch some tennis. There's still a lot of daylight after 5 p.m., still can get some tennis in until 9 30 p.m that was always the beauty is you, you finished up at 9 45 and you could have some semblance of a sleep right i agree i mean it's it, it definitely <laughs> for those who are involved working the tournament yeah those who are involved covering the tournament and then the very top players are going to be out there two or three times in a night session in the course of a, of a maybe twice in the course of the event definitely a, a change probably for the negative but globally i definitely understand why they did it and we're talking about literally one match a night that's it but yeah the argument's a good one do we really need a night session when tournaments have that much daylight and finish that late and and uh and the answer is you know in an ideal world no but the revenue they're getting from from this night session uh, through amazon in france is real money so i understand the uh, i understand the temptation Chris, normally we do a third set. We discuss your career that's been done and dusted here on the show. Let's go into it. We're going to do a 10 ball scramble. Uh, I say it, word association, and you say what comes in your mind. Let's do the 10 ball scramble and let's see how we do. You ready? Yeah. The best tournament for the media? Wimbledon. Why? I just love uh, the access we have now uh, compared to some other tournaments to, to the players and their teams. And and I love watching tennis on, on grass. I don't get to do it enough. And that place is still has that atmosphere that no other place in, in world sport has, in my opinion. Isn't it amazing, too, that you can't get a bad strawberry there? That every strawberry is like a perfect, beautiful <laughs> strawberry? I've had better strawberries in Paris at Roland Garros, but the ones in Wimbledon, you're right. There's a consistency there. Definitely. Good baseline rallies on the on the on the strawberry level. Wow, wow, that's that's breaking news. It is better man. strawberries but in Paris. Les fraises, les fraises de Paris. Les fraises, les fraises. Exactly. Now, your your most poignant Rafa memory. Wow, this is not going to be a quick scramble if you're going to ask these kind of questions, Craig. Hey, listen, um, you gotta, I mean, you got to the scramble's the scramble. We, we do the best we can. Well, I'm not going to give away too much with my book coming out here, but I, I, I can say that um, I was there for his first Wimbledon and I met Rafa and Tony on a back court and um, never seen him. Obviously, I'd heard a lot about him. I hadn't watched him play in person yet. And just to see him uh, at that age, he was 17 and on the court at Wimbledon from a distance, like you're looking at a 25 or 26 year old. When he got up close, suddenly you realize what a you know, cherub face guy he was. And just to see this incredible energy and enthusiasm that he had for the sport. And now to look back on that and realize how far it carried him. I mean, that for sure is, is a memory that's pretty powerful. So, Chris, you put your last article for the Times as a staff writer in today. Then what happens to you? Well, um, I'm still on the payroll until part of June. So that's <laughs> nice. Um, got some got some vacation that I'm working working off, which is always, always a good thing. But I'm going to go into my new mode, and my new mode is uh, I'm going to be a full-time author, which has been a dream of mine since I was a boy, to be honest with you. Sitting in the library when back of the Dewey Decimal System and, and the sports stack, and and reading all the uh, all the sports books, and thinking someday I can write my own. I mean, I was I must have been what 11, 12 years old when I was doing that. So here I am. I'm 58, and I'm going to get a chance 
thanks to the success of the Federer book and all those years of the times to be able to, to go off and do that. And I'm really excited about it. So I'm going to be researching my, my Rafa book and getting ready to write some more after that, I hope. And then I'm also starting this, um, uh, kind of a short form thing, side gig on Substack, which is called tennis and beyond. And I'm going to try to, uh, have a lot of fun with that post regularly on there. It's not going to be a daily thing, but it's going to be regular. And I'm hoping to, uh, Explore different themes and everything else, you know? Tennis and beyond on Substack, you pay $50 and you get what? $50 gets you a year subscription to uh, all the content. Some of it's going to be free, but a lot of it's going to be, uh, you know, paywalled. Or you can pay $6 a month. And it's just brand new for me. I you know, obviously have watched some of my colleagues in other sports do this. Um, guy named Jeff Shackelford. He's a wonderful golf writer. He's doing it with a lot of success yep. around, around golf. Joe Posnanski's done it uh, as a general sports columnist with a lot of baseball and a little bit of tennis in there too. And I've just been watching it and observing it. And, and I, it looks like a great fit for someone like me because I've always had a lot of ideas and I have a lot of um, different things that I've liked to address. Tennis is going to be the main the main meal on there for sure. That's my main interest, but I'm also going to write about some other things too. I've covered all manner of sports in my career, Craig. So definitely going to ch you know, chip in once in a while on Olympics or different things like that, but it'll be mostly tennis and it's going to be, you know, people don't have to pay to get access to some of the stuff, but if they want to support me and my new, my new uh, realm here, and I'm also going to talk about the books, you know, on there and, and some uh, deeper ways and behind the scene lo scenes looks. And obviously when I'm in the middle of a manuscript, I don't know if you've written a book or not. Maybe you have, you know, when you're in your manuscript, you're not going to be right, you know, writing daily on Substack, but I'll be, I'll still try to keep consistent and, and check in with people regularly, even when I'm deep into a, finishing up a manuscript. Listen, on behalf of those of us that read you for, you know, the better part of our lives, I want to just say thank you for the great contribution you made. I always look forward to reading Clary in the Times. I suppose I'll miss that, you know, Really, congratulations on uh, promoting and doing so much special stuff for tennis. It's been great, and I look forward to the Warrior. The Warrior. Now, when's that going to come out? You got. I mean, are you gonna. Are you just gonna start popping? Are you gonna start writing on that every day? Oh yeah, that's gonna. Yeah. It's, a, it's a full. It's a full time job. A, a book like that. The Federer book was was definitely that way, and you know, it's coming out in twenty twenty four. We don't know exactly when yet. Going to sort of see how we time it, but um. Hey, but, but I want to go back to what you said, and I, I really appreciate that, Craig. And and uh, it's been a, it's been really special to have these conversations with people and and get a sense of, of um, you know what it means to read somebody for all those different all those years, and sort of the same place. And I can tell you, I got back as much as I as much as I gave, and I tennis has given me a lot. I mean, I was a, a Navy kid running around the the country with my father being transferred every couple of years, and tennis was my way to make new friends and and. Uh, was kind of my ticket to uh to stability in my life so and and i've really enjoyed covering it globally as one of the most global sports out there and i've it's taken me to six continents and all kinds of countries and all kinds of great interviews and stories so um you know from zimbabwe to uh to new york city so it's been a, it's been a great thing your advice to the tennis press these are tough times uh, i'm not sure they're going to get any easier but I, I think it's I think it's important to recognize what kind of value you, that we do bring as journalists. There's a lot of people that are probably questioning that now with, um, you know, players with social media and direct uh, connection with the public and artificial intelligence coming down the track here pretty fast. Probably going to be yeah. writing some tennis, 
tennis articles of its own, but you know, there's nothing to be, uh, nothing beats a, a great interview, um, human contact, and nothing beats a great idea for a story. And a lot of it really is that. I mean, it's people can crank out, you know, lots of uh, lots of words and lots of images, and and a lot of it's public relations. A lot of what you're seeing out there is stuff that's produced by the tours themselves. But an independent voice, an independent mind, creating a independent story and a great story idea that I think AI is not going to be able to beat us on for quite a while. And so I think it's important for, for journalists to keep their confidence on that. And also for the public to recognize that they need to, there's a lot of value in, in truly independent reporting because that's what, um, that's what journalism is. The rest of it's just garnish. Stage advice from Christopher Clary, my man, Cannot thank you enough. Congratulations on this outstanding and long and, uh, you know, magnificent career. Uh, we will see you in a week's time in Paris. Uh, I will never say goodbye. I'll just say I will see you later. Christopher Clary, you are released. <laughs> thank you, Craig. Appreciate you having me on. I appreciate all you do for tennis. Thanks a lot. Huge thank you to Christopher Clary. Good luck in all your future endeavors. And thank you to Diodora. See them at diodora.com. And be on the lookout as there will be more to come. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.